It's Metro Fan TV on the weekly rundown, coming to you live for episode eight on a beautiful fall evening here in Harrison, New Jersey. Lens and Fernando coming to you live prior to this titanic clash against Atlanta United, which is going to be the Shield six-pointer. Uh, here to also break down the game against Toronto FC uh, earlier on Saturday, which I think, uh, you know, I think... <laughs> without saying kind of a lot of questions being raised on what was without a question of a doubt, a rather divisive game, Yeah, I think, right? Uh, it goes without saying that I think at this point in the season, we have a pretty good um, grasp of what we can and what we could expect from this team. And, uh, you know, Going through a mid-season coaching change and having to deal with the amount of injuries that we've had to deal with, you know, I think uh, we've kind of come to this point, I think, where we're kind of unsure what to really expect from this team week in, week out. I think it's maybe not as much of a certainty as things were at the beginning of the year under Jesse Marsh, for sure. Yeah. Where you'd kind of expect the team to either just come out all guns blazing and blowing teams out early on, or kind of running into a wall, kind of, you know, either running into a wall and grinding out a win, or kind of just shooting ourselves in the foot to a degree, because we kind of ran out of ideas. So uh, I think uh, a majority of our analysis of the Toronto game will be kind of centered on trying to answer this uh, question of whether or not, um, what to really expect from a Chris Armas team. September yeah. 2018 for sure so uh, I think without further ado we'll uh, begin our breakdown of the Toronto FC game and uh, it was an ugly one wasn't it <laughs> I think. yeah I mean <laughs> th that game for me was interesting because I, I think it, it, it told a lot of stories um, I think at this point so we're, we're 14 games under Chris Armas which is almost as many MLS you know regular season games under Jesse, and I, and I think there's a clear difference in, in, in how the team is playing, for better or worse. I think there's arguments for both sides of that. Um, but what, what made this, this game interesting for me was, I feel like you saw at the f beginning of the first half, I'd say maybe the first 10 to 15 minutes, they, they looked more like... They look more like the Jesse team, but also like the early Chris Armas team. Because I feel like now there's almost like a divide now, even within Chris Armas's tenure. I I have very, very, very vivid recollections, and I've looked back and I've I've seen some you know some of the longer highlights, um, the, you know the condensed matches of the first couple of games when when Chris took over, and like the second half of like the Kansas City game, New England game, even the Columbus game, even though we lost, you know, some of those first couple of games, those, those second halves were, were massive. I mean, we came out and we looked, again, like like the Jesse Marsh, uh, 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 you know, type of, of, like, super intense high press. And I feel like the the amount of time that we've seen that has kind of dwindled a little bit over over time. And some of that, I think... I've attributed to just it's it's been hot, you know, the schedule congestion and stuff. But I guess now that we've kind of 
come a little further away from that. Maybe it's not just that. Maybe it's just a fundamental change. But Toronto kind of messed me up a little bit because, I, again, I feel like in that first, like, 10, 15 minutes, I saw that again. I feel like I saw, you know, some of that high tempo, like, really, really, really high tempo um, that we're kind of used to seeing, that we were used to seeing with, with, with Jesse and, and that we saw under uh, Chris Armas a little bit more and when he first took over. And then the team kind of just, like, fell apart. They kind of just slowed down a little bit. It got, you know, they got sloppy. They weren't clean. Uh, weren't as many clean chances. Um, then the second half rolls around, and I feel like it started well. I feel like they started better than they ended in the first half. But it really wasn't until Chris made the subs for, uh, for Mouille and Etienne that we really saw what I feel was a significant change in how they were playing. I mean, I, I remember tweeting it too, that like the visible difference of the press and for me, more importantly, where I think has been lacking, I think the biggest difference is the speed of transition and the speed of play after transition was night and day. They won the press in the midfield, they immediately transitioned and they didn't slow it down. We, I, I, there's been a lot of that slowing down. I feel like Royer is usually at the center of that. But what we saw with Wheel and, and uh, when Etienne came in was once that transition happened, they kept on going. They kept on pushing to goal. And to me, that looked like the old, like, the, it looked like us. And the reason why I say this is interesting is because if it's just like a fundamental change, actually, let me, let me backtrack. Let me also bring up what Robles said in, in a post-game interview, how he kind of echoed that, how he echoed how, you know, the team towards the end of the game looked like us again. What is what he said. So for me, like these are interesting things because if the team is just fundamentally playing different, like they're going into this game at the instruction of Chris Armour to not play as high tempo and, and as intense as as Jesse was, then it would be expected to not look like you. Like you are now fundamentally different. So to see such differences in the game and then to hear Robles say, yeah, we look like us again, to me seems like it's not so much a difference in an in instruction to slow it down. There's just something happening to slow it down. I don't know if I'm explaining that the right way, but like for, for, for Robles to come out and say, yeah, we look like us again, but in a way that's like relieved, you're, he's either saying like low key, I'm glad we're doing this again. Armis, can you keep, you know, can you kind of get us back to that? Or we've been trying, but something hasn't clicked where we can't. And because of that, we're only seeing blips in certain games of this. Yeah, I think um, we talked, of, I think in earlier episodes, we talked about how there was a kind of a game state experimentation to a degree, right? I think uh, we talked about how there were a number of uh, changes introduced uh, early on in the Chris Armas regime to try and maybe try and provide a bunch of wrinkles to the usual uh, high pressing, high tempo style that we used to play. And I think uh, there are a number of uh, really good articles that broke, I think, in the weeks past that kind of started to discuss um, you know, I think, and to discuss a lot of these tactical changes that mm -hmm. we saw, you know, I think first of all, uh, there was a talk about, um, I think there was a really good heat map that was released that talked about defensive intensity yeah. and how it's distributed all over the field. And under Marsh, you could kind of see that um, the pressing intensity, I think, uh, was markedly a lot more um, intense higher up the pitch to a degree, right? Like around in around the 18-yard box, you know, uh, 
the team definitely looked like they were a bit more geared to um, heavily contest um, for the ball in that particular part of the field, you know, yeah. deep in the opponent's half or just behind your halfway line. While um, under Armis, you know, I think uh, the intensity of the defense has been spread back a bit more and it's definitely markedly less um, intense, I think. And that was, uh, I believe that was from uh, ASA's article yeah. written by uh, at Tactics Platform. And I think when you talk about the um, s speed of transition as well, I think it kind of relates back to another discussion that we had about, you know, using possession plays as a complement or a wrinkle to the normal work in the high press. But looking at the way that the wingers were used in this Toronto game, I think you could definitely say that there's been a bit of incongruity that's developed in recent weeks, I think. And the um, speed of transition from defense to attack, I think, being at the center of that, like you mentioned, with Royer and Riza, I think, particularly. Um, we saw a number of times this game that um, Danny definitely seemed to be a bit more keen on kind of holding the ball up a little bit more and not quite, you know, being as aggressive in pushing the ball forward mm -hmm. as, you know, you might have wanted to see. And you saw when Al Alex Muell and Derek Etienne came into the game, you know, I think uh, we... When we talk about um, the lack, sorry, when we talk about the changes made throughout this regime, I think it's definitely um, key to talk about how I think moving towards these possession sets and as a result slowing down the tempo of the game, what had once become kind of a, what we thought was going to be a wrinkle, I think, to the press, in which they slowed down the tempo of the game and didn't see, really see any clear-cut opportunities to break has kind of worryingly, I think in my opinion, become one of the main um, attacking, the main attacking philosophy, as opposed to the compliment that it was originally supposed to be, in my opinion. Yeah. I think, you know, as you saw many times throughout the game, you know, Royer be out there on the left wing, the ball would kind of come up to him, but instead of trying to uh, play a forward pass to someone moving ahead in space or something, you know, like uh, the team markedly, like, just kind of reined back a little bit and looked a bit more content, it's just kind of pass the ping ball pong around, a little bit, ping yeah. pong it a little bit, and, uh, you know... I, I don't remember who it was, but I remember towards the beginning, someone... Oh, there's, fuck, I don't remember. It, it, it may have been, like, Lawless or, or Twelman or, or something. Like, one, I think it was one of these, you know, bigger media guys. And, and I remember them saying something interesting, and I, I, I guess I didn't... I didn't accept it maybe more as as much as I should have but basically what they said was what the, what might be difficult with with trying to introduce that as a wrinkle is you might throw them off in a way that they don't know you almost confuse them yeah like you don't it be, it becomes hard to know when you turn that wrinkle on and when you you you, you keep it off and i don't know maybe that's Maybe that's part of it. Maybe we're seeing where they just they're just they just don't know when to transition to that wrinkle, and it's maybe become too prevalent. Like in, you know, like like we had mentioned before, it, it really was a situational thing. You know, it was very much in certain situations of the game against certain styles and certain moments, you saw that kind of build up or just outside the box. Where now it's again, it's 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 
become a, a lot more of okay we have position you know we have, we're we, uh, uh, you know we press we got possession less transition but once you get to the final third they kind of again they kind of slow it down a little bit and a little bit too much and it seems very intentional so I don't know I, I don't know if maybe there that's part of it maybe they just don't know and maybe that's why we see in a game like Toronto especially why there were so many individual moments I think where there was a lot of that kind of switching back and forth. Because, um, I mean, even after the first 10, 15 minutes where I felt there was a, a, a visible dip, like slowdown, there were still moments where I think there were some good transitional moments, like uh, a, a, transi- a transitional moment. So it just seemed like it was kind of, again, with this game going back and forth. So I don't know, maybe there was something to the team just not being able to reconcile not only like only playing in one way, like they're just incapable of just always playing, at a, you know, at at a at hundred miles an hour, and they they don't know how to kind of throttle back and when to throttle back, throttle back. Yeah, you know, like I, I kind of originally envisioned this particular um, scheme as being kind of a response to teams that were willing to be a bit more reactive against us, you know, teams that were kind of content to kind of sit back and uh, not apply as much immediate pressure. I think to when we're on the ball as we might like. But you can clear I think you could see from the way that Toronto FC approached this particular game is that they weren't really going to try and be as reactive as we might like, right? I think uh, when you look at the work in midfield especially, like yeah. they're very their playing is very proactively, you know, like they're very um, first to the ball, being very physical with our players again. And uh, generally looking to close down space as soon as possible. Like you saw that there was a very much a containment strategy um, from Greg Vanny that involved um, the, it involved Michael Bradley in the center of the park and whoever would be that help side defender out wide, kind of trying to pinch our guys into those corners to try and pin them down and slow that transition in particular. And, you know, I think when you talk about possession sets, like I think it doesn't really work as much against proactive defenses yep. because our guys aren't really geared to um, pass their way, I think, through really proactive pressure like that to a degree. And, you know, other teams have had that success against us in the past where they countered our press by pressing the hell out of us yeah. as well. And, you know, when they talk about making decisions quickly, you know, you're talking about how to make one or two quick passes to open up a direct. Uh, pass to open up another part of the field or switch yep. the field of play to start the breakaways and everyone allowing everyone to push up. Here, instead, I think, like, when we resort to these um, sets where we kind of slow things down with some short passes and ping-pong balls back and back, like, we're not going to match up well against teams that are playing as proactively like that because we are not a short pass possession team. Yep. And you can kind of see it in the way that, um, okay, I mean, our pass completion percentages have kind of hovered around 70 to 66% on average as a team. And you know, that's generally not great. We're not set up to pass our well, way through short passes yeah. in under pressure. And and you part know? and part of of the the low passing percentage is also kind of just by design. Yeah. Know, a lot of times you're, you know, you're you're creating these situations where you it, people kind of get a little jarred when, when, when you tell them this, but I mean, if they've said it, they've said it themselves. So sometimes you almost want to give possession away in certain areas to create like further up the field 
to create another uh, uh, another area of, of press so you can uh, right. you know, win the second and third balls and then you can immediately kind of go transition into goal. So yeah. our passing would probably be a little bit better if we played differently, but the problem is because this team is just groomed to play in such a specific kind of way, they're not used to kind of just, again, like you said, just playing slow and, and kind of just doing a slow buildup. That's just really not how the team is built. Um, but, yeah, I, 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 I don't know. I, I, I'm still not convinced that it's – I'm not convinced that this slower tempo is explicitly at the instruction of, of Armas. I, I, still, I still feel like the press itself has changed in where they want to initiate the press. And because that's a little bit further up the field – it you're you're basically reducing the actual size of the pitch that you that you basically give yourselves opportunities to press. Once you get possession, then yes, you spread the field up. So I think maybe that's kind of a disconnect between like some of the data points. People I've I've noticed some people saying, oh, you know, they're playing, uh, they're distributing the field a lot more. So no, there's no way that they can be you know condensing the press area. I disagree. That's possession. Yeah, once they get once they regain possession after they've already won the press. It's spreading out, but that article by um, uh, by a uh, by a really highlighted that they're creating a uh, they're trying to expand the gap of basically their you know their defense and their attacking side to create quote unquote less risky uh, rest less risky areas by basically just launching the ball further up the field and again by doing that you're vertically condensing the field you're creating less of a space to press. And because of that, you don't see as many just raw, like, just raw amount of pressing moments. Whereas before, if, if the press is starting in the midfield, you have so much more space in the field to actually initiate the press. But again, once they get into possession, that's when, that's when they slow the things down. That's when they kind of just, you know, spread out a little bit more and distribute more. And maybe that's... That part, again, I'm sure is by design, but the intensity of the press, I don't think has, by instruction, changed well, as much as people as people think. Well, when you talk about, I think, uh, we, we understand the press as being this sort of facet that um, we try and win the ball back as quickly and as soon as possible after losing it in possession, right? And I think, you know, when people talk about... Um, the play being a bit more spread out. I think it could kind of be fair to start wondering that maybe because as a result of the possession instructions that they are given, trying to spread the field out a bit more, that they're not really in a position where they can immediately be as reactive to losing yes, the ball that, yeah, that, that's as they might ball. like. Yep, and as a result true. of that, like our midfield's a bit more spread out, which means the passing lanes aren't cl quite as closed down yeah. as much as we That's might like. Point, yeah. You know, and as and, and, if, and also if you're possessing more, I mean, you're fundamentally reducing the amount of times that you're going to press anyway. Yeah. You know, whereas if, if you're if you're a lot more uh, uh, condensed and you're a lot more compa uh, compact, you're always going to be you know there's always going to be these moments of of, of press yeah. and press and, and transition and, press and, and, transition. and especially talking about how I think that and that was that one interesting part of the article that basically said that they're trying to be distributing a bit more evenly to both flanks where under I think under Jesse it was specifically targeting that right side yeah and I think targeting that right side was particularly notable because I think if you play direct balls into that right side 
allows you to keep kind of a compact shape as you move up and mm -hmm. then use that right touch line to like create this sort of trap press. And that's what they talk about condensing yep. the field a bit more. Whereas with these possession sets where you're spreading out a bit more on both flanks, you know, that does kind of open up the mid, the center of the field a bit more. Just simply because our guys aren't going to be maybe our guys aren't really sure whether the right side has to move in when we go down the left side to try and complement that, to try and close that space down a bit more and allow the center of the field to move alongside and close down that extra space as well. I think, you know, I think it's going to require a bit of uh, further analysis, obviously, but I'm starting to think that, you know, some of the confusion about the press intensity, particularly in the center of the field, may come from the fact that our players haven't quite been, gotten used to the fact that they have that the um, weak side, um, uh, sorry, the far side attackers need to pinch in a bit mm. more to help condense the field. Um, when we decide to go down um, one particular flank. And what particularly I think might make this a bit difficult is that like it's a very situational thing, right? Like maybe by design from possession sets, like both flanks are told to spread out a bit more in order to give more options to the people in the center of the field to go to. But then as a result of that, like the question might be um, whether like upon that decision being made, how the flank that wasn't chosen chooses to react to that. Because it kind of does seem to me that yeah. they're still kind of hugging the line a bit more than we might be used to. Because if you saw them go down the other side that wasn't used, you'd usually see those guys starting to tuck in a bit more, right? And when you see the left side, like if they chose to go down the right side, for example, and you saw the left side attackers like starting to tuck in a bit more, then you'd see, you know, you'd see similar movements from the center players, right? You'd start seeing Kaku, Kaku like float a bit more to the right. You'll start seeing Adams and Davis like push up a bit more yeah. to close down that central passing lane. And the only person that kind of be looking at the um, other side in the event of a field switch or a hopeful long ball would either be, you know, would probably be Kamar or one of the center backs pushing up to yeah. kind of deal with that. Yeah, I mean, in so, those moments, those are, those, are, those are usually the moments where Royer now tucks in and pushes deep basically as a second striker. So, yeah, yeah. those... those yeah, I mean, look, it, it could even be as something as simple as, look, they're not, the intensity of their press is supposed to be the same, but because of, you know, like I said, because of the changes, yeah. it's changed how the press functions. They're not really like, sure. Like, it's not, he's not trying to slow the press down, it's just because of certain instructions that he's given, it's it's kind of Modified the triggers, I think, a little bit. Yeah. And the and, way that they position themselves off the ball, I think yeah. that might be one of one particular thing that we might have to take a closer look at. Yeah, and, and it, what I find interesting too, though, is, is you know, there is, of course, this huge narrative that the team doesn't, you know, they're not as intense, they don't press as hard, blah, blah, blah. But, like, it's, for me, I just find it interesting that if you listen to all the players, if you listen to some of the coaching staff, but, you know, they mentioned that, no, no, things haven't changed. Of course, you can just, you know, people are, of course, just going to brush it off as, oh, they're not going to say anything otherwise. But it's, for me, it's been interesting because I, I try to listen to a lot of the, the, the you know, pregame interviews from the other side, you know, whatever, whatever opposing team is coming up. And, like, it's been universally the same, like, language by all the opposing players and all the opposing managers who's been presented of this question of how are things different in Armist. And they pretty much all say, yeah, you know, they're a little bit different, but yeah, they're kind of the same. So, like, it's, I, me personally, I just find it interesting that the people who are, are actually playing, the ones who are, are actually looking at footage and going over the tactics 
their conclusion when they go all go over all this is basically no, they're still they're still a pretty intense high pressing team. Yeah, some things change, but they're basically the same. Mm. But like the narrative outside that is no, there's these wholesale changes. They're not a high pressing team anymore. They're not as intense. We're slowing down. So I just for me it's just it's interesting kind of seeing the the different directions that this conversation has gone across kind of all like the whole MLS community because you see a lot of other people and other fan bases kind of, you know, chiming in with it too. So yeah, yeah I, I, I don't my my ultimately I think that I don't think Jesse I don't think Chris is trying to fundamentally change the intensity of the press. I don't think he's trying to turn us into fucking a team run by Pep. I don't think we're like this, you know, super possession based team. I think that he in certain situations by design does want to slow it down, which I'm actually completely okay with. We've won a couple games because of that. Um, but I think maybe some of his changes are inadvertently slowing things down more than maybe he is maybe more, maybe more than he wants to. Yeah. I think, I think, uh, you know, I, I do kind of maybe pick up on a sense that, you know, there might be a bit of confusion. I think, as you say, I think in the team as to, uh, when to do certain things and what game state, you know? And I think as a result of that, like, you know, it kind of comes back to this whole thing where, you know, I think for about 90 minutes, like we're more or less playing a very similar game to what we'd been used to under Jesse Marsh. It's just that maybe for certain stretches of the game when you're not really sure, um, they're, they don't, they're not really sure, like as sure as to what they're trying to do that in certain situations, like they're a bit slow to react to something or a bit slow to, uh, maybe a bit slow to, not, maybe not a bit slow to react to something, but maybe a bit it's, unsure it's, as to how to start countering as yeah. a result of their positions on the field. And, as and, a slow, and slow to, almost slow to adjust to that particular moment. Yeah, I, th I really think ultimately it's a matter of uh, adjusting and understanding tactical instructions a bit better. Yeah. And and you that know, could and be look. I mean that that could be an issue of of you know Chris himself. Yeah. I mean, you know he's not the the most articulate you know person unfortunately as know, when yeah. as, when he speaks, which I even then I feel is kind of funny because sometimes he does seem like super clear, but other times he's just speaking like as fast as he thinks and like he needs to slow down a little bit. So I mean I don't know how bad it is during training, but I, I definitely I think everyone can make a safe assumption that you know there could definitely be some communication issues because of how unclear and the fact that he kind of just, you know, speaks in fragments, yeah, fragments of sentence sometimes. Um, but yeah, I, for, for me, the Toronto game, wa watching the game a second time was telling because it, it kind of confirmed some things I noticed in the first game, you know, in the first time I saw it. The first time I saw it, you know, when I was there, I was like, okay, let me, let me try to see the game a little bit differently. Maybe I am looking for certain things you know, because of what I'm seeing on the data. Let me just kind of ignore the data and just see what I see and then, you know, kind of like look at the data afterwards. And yeah, I, I, I saw a team that was trying to play that quote-unquote super high press, high energy drink soccer. I didn't see a team that was trying to play slow outside of a couple of moments, but for the most part, I saw a team trying to play a certain way, but they just seem to be struggling. Yeah, it's a bit of a, it's more of a misapplication, I think, of certain wrinkles as opposed to like um, a wholesale change. Yeah. It's a misapplication of when to, to use these tactics, maybe. 
and right. part of it, you know, re relies on the fact that you know you're doing this um, to a team that's been very used and built in a way to play a yep. very particular style, and you know, like the fact that you're trying to do this midway through a season, um, midway through a season under basically on the fly. You know, it's a very hard accomplishment yeah. to kind of get people to try and uh, accomplish and to get that semblance of when to apply these tactics, I think, in certain game states, like on the fly, basically. You know, yeah. it's a very tricky situation Look. that you find yourself in. 2015, 2016, 2017, all I heard were people complaining that there was no plan B. All I ever heard was, was from the, at the very least, a very vocal minority, if not the actual majority. Now, I'm going to go and say it's the majority of the fan base who again in come, you know, comes to playoffs and the high press just isn't working for various reasons. Their teams are, are finding ways to just fundamentally break down the press like, uh, uh, um, like Columbus or, or teams like Montreal that says, you know what? You, we're not even going to let you press us. So many different situations where, where we needed a very clear, different look. As, as big of a proponent as I am of, of the high press to the point where people call me, you know, fucking uh, rebel apologists, okay? I can even sit down and say, you know what? No, sometimes you have to find different ways to play. If that's what it means to get past the playoffs where teams fundamentally change how every team changes at times how they play for the playoffs except for us maybe we need to do that so for me if this is Jets if this is Chris trying to tread a line of injecting a different look for different moments that I think is actually a good thing while at the same time trying to just win and and trying to keep true to the identity and and stay true to the style and stay true to the system and you know keep pushing towards the shield fine we won't notice of course into the playoffs we don't know if all this shit's going to work but at least i can say that you know what we're not going to go into the playoffs again with just one idea under under the belt because as idealistic as that is and i and i love i love the high i love everything about the way the system is played I, th I think it's a reasonable take to say that there were plenty of moments where, you know what, maybe we probably should have slowed it down a little bit. Mm. Maybe we should have possessed a little bit more outside the box. Maybe we still, maybe we should have tried to build a, a four, five, six pass, you know, quick little pass build up outside the box in possession and break down teams at bunker like we did against, um, oh God, who's the team that, 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 uh, that, not that long ago did that. And I mean, that's how we event was it LAFC who kind of sat back a couple of times and we broke through or was it K I, I can't remember. It was definitely a team that sounded like Chicago. If you ask me, cause they had that whole yeah, uh, sweeper yes, system. Yes, that's right. The Bastion Schweinsteiger. Yeah. Yeah. Like so Belko like, played us very much bunker ball at yep. home in Chicago. I, so yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I think there are so many unanswered questions because we don't know what is actually happening behind the scenes. Yeah. We don't know what Chris is actually telling them. We do know some stuff that he's telling them. You know, like, you know, we, hear, uh, we uh, an article came out today where Kaku was saying that, you know, he's trying to use him a little bit more outside, not to be only in the middle. And, and basically, 
go after the ball at times if he has to. Maybe that's why he he hasn't looked him his uh, he hasn't looked the same as he did before. I know some people have mentioned kind of flashbacks of Sasha last year in those yeah. moments. So yeah, there are definitely changes. I just I just I don't know. I think there's just a lot of questions, a lot of things that that won't be answered and unfortunately until after our season is done. Yeah. But all I can say is we have found ways to win. There have absolutely been games that we have looked like the Red Bull team from earlier this year. If this is all just a wrinkle or just some weird transitional moment where, where again, Chris is trying to find ways for us to win in different ways and preparing us for what is going to be a very difficult playoff run, hey, I'm, I'm all for it. Yeah, my, my take on the situation varies a little bit, I think. Uh, you, know, um, you know, I kind of agree with the uh, idea that Armis's heart is in the right place and trying to get the team to be a bit more comfortable and, and resorting to something that isn't high press 24-7, right? Because that was definitely a criticism that we encountered a lot um, under Jesse Marsh, for sure. And I... You know, I think I kind of, you know, it would be a fair game to also kind of question, you know, that, you know, even though he may be kind of asking the right questions, right, of kind of wondering if the team can't break through using our normal tactics, what else can we rely on? And trying to get the team to play a bit more of a slowed down possession game in certain situations. But we also have the, you know, we kind of do understand that the way that the team is built to a degree may mean that we might not be as comfortable playing this type of, yep. you know, like game as we might like, you know, because we're certainly not really meant to play at a slower pace, trying to stroke the ball around a little bit to try and open up, slowly open up spaces for our attackers to creep into and find that, you know, I think uh, at the end of the day for me, uh, you know, it's, it's also entirely possible to think that while there's some form of a plan B trying to be formulated, it may not necessarily also be the plan B that bears yep. fruit or is congruous with the way the team is set up right now. Yep. And, you know, I think with, a lot, with this in mind, you know, I think this is why this offseason particularly is going to be very critical. Because the way that this team was built was built to basically play energy drink soccer or die. I think uh, you, you can't really look at the way that um, our midfield is and say that we are meant to play short passing patiently. Not at all, right? Yeah. So why I say that this offseason is critical? Because I think we might start with all the, with all the money that's coming off the books and all the roster slots that we'll be opening as a result of um, as a result of people moving on. You know, I think we can expect is there a possible scenario where we lose four center backs and our starting defensive midfielder, right? That with the amount of money that's coming off the books and with the amount of um, you know, amount of roster slots that are opening up we might have a situation where we might be bringing in players that have skill sets that may be a bit more adept to not just playing one particular way. Yeah. You know, and it's a very fine line that they have to walk. As I think I've kind of hinted at this throughout my analysis, it's a very fine line between 
dogmatic, um, dogmatic, sticking to the dogma of the system, but also balancing out with um, these little wrinkles here and there. You know, there's a possibility where the wrinkle becomes a bit more dominant than we might like. And a lot of that really depends on team composition and the ability to ha bring in personnel that can and know how to switch it up. I think to a degree, this is why, you know, we might be a bit more flexible with the Christian, with Christian Castor as a midfield. Yeah. Because, you know, point. he does have a wider passing range than Tyler Adams does. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think while he may not be as dominant in certain ways that Tyler is, I would say that he has a bit more of an all-rounded game. And that may be a bit more suited to trying to introduce more tenets of more flexibility in the way that this team plays at soccer. And I think that's the important thing to look ahead going forward is that, you know, I mean, it's it, th this plan B, whether it works out or not, you know, I'm encouraged to think that, you know, at least it's being thought of. Yeah. It may not necessarily yield the results that we want, but I kind of like that we're at least thinking about it, yeah. which means th that there is a vision for what we might be bringing in in the offseason to help realize this to a degree. And I think maybe other watchers of other Red Bull Global teams would be obviously be a bit concerned about this because, you know, I think Hassan Hutul tried to do this a little bit at Leipzig yeah. as well. But it got him in trouble. <laughs> but, you know, I think to a degree, like, I... It's a bit hard for me to kind of express what I kind of mean by this, but you know, I, I don't think leaning in one direction or another is particularly going to be the most um, sensible result. I think that it, it requires a lot of fine-tuning and it requires a lot of tightrope walking in order to bring in these types of guys who'd be able to A, execute the main plan, but also have enough skills to rely on as a fallback option. And, you know, I really do think that, you know, trying to do that halfway through the season was always going to be kind of a tough ask. Yeah. It's very, very tough to just certainly maybe ask the team to switch it up as, to try and introduce this halfway through the season when the team's already kind of set in the way that they want to play. And as a result of that, you know, I think it does end up resulting in some confusion amongst the ranks yeah. as to how to play this game that they want to play. And, well... You know, I think this is where some of the criticism levied is valid, but yeah. it's also kind of where I think it's a, it's a circumstance where it's a circumstance where the intention is right and the execution may or may not work. May the, the execution has been all right, but it's, it's whether or not the yeah. idea itself was the idea that we were looking for. You yeah. know, like he's thinking about the right things, but are the solutions correct? I'll, Maybe. Yeah, I, I'll leave. I'll leave my 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 final thoughts of the segment as this. Um, I thought Toronto. I thought the Toronto game was very interesting because, as I mentioned before, I think it showed. If you really look deep into it, I think it shows more of what might be going behind the scenes that we think. I think that. It's very possible that, um, like I mentioned before, that the they're trying to play the way they always have, but the changes that he's introduced maybe is not conducive for it, and because of that, they're struggling to pick up on it, learn on it, and, and kind of really implement that into, into the best possible way. But what I will say is this, regardless of everything, 
if we went, if he, if, if let's say no changes were made, right? We were just, I mean, a carbon copy of, of how we played when Jesse was here. And we got knocked out in the first fucking, in, in, in the first game by like Columbus from the same shit where they just owned this team fundamentally at its core. Like Burhalter just, he owns the high press and I'm in fucking, you know, I'm, I'm freezing my ass off in fucking Rebel Arena in like the 88th minute. Like shit, we're going to lose again because yet again, you know, this team doesn't have a fucking plan B for, for, for Greg Burhalter. I would be significantly more fucking infuriated than if that same situation happens. But at least I can say, you know what? Credit to Chris for at least trying something. Yeah. Because for me, I think we've seen in the last three years that the system fundamentally works. It works. We win most it, of the games. It proves that we're itself. To win. Yeah. For me, last year was more of a blip because yeah. of weird roster shit. But even in, even in our in our best games last year, we dominated. So for me, the system is proven. Where it hasn't proved itself is in the playoffs. Because again, teams fundamentally change themselves, and you're playing teams back to back. That 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 in itself kind of makes things a little weird because now teams have the you know five, six days before worth of film to, to your most recent form to kind of plan plan around. Mm. So we haven't seen anything with this team comes playoff time to just change things. The most change we ever saw was last year, second leg against Toronto, where, you know, Jesse base play, basically plays Adams as a 10 and in a 4-4-2 four, four, diamond, which almost worked, by the way. But like, again, me... Personally, I am not totally happy with some of the changes, but if 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 comes if comes the playoffs, if we do get knocked out, at least I can say, you know what? Credit to him for trying something yeah. if things didn't work. Yeah. As opposed to year fucking four of them going into the playoffs doing exactly the same thing and it potentially not working. Mm. Yeah, I think that'd be fair to say. And I think that's kind of you know, it's the silver lining for me is that, you know, um, he does adjust the game state. His substitutions have mostly been on point other than the city fiasco, I think. It's uh, the question of how we come out to start the game. And I think that's, or how we adjust prior to the substitutions. Yeah. You know, and I think that's going to be one of the things that we have to navigate looking forward, especially uh, with the uh, big game on Sunday that we'll be uh, discussing right after this. Now that it's here, uh, there's a lot of talk of this being game of the year. Uh, now, now that it is here, I mean, does, does it have that bit of a feel, you know, considering where you guys are in, in this quarter shield and uh, separating yourselves from other teams right now? Yeah, well, we, we've known all along where, where this game lies in our schedule, and we were all along hoping that it would it would matter as much as it will. So. All year the team has, has risen to, to big games, and in the past it's been the same. And I said it yesterday, in derby matches or uh, in playoff games and Champions League, the Open Cup, the team has shown up in, in, in big games, and especially at home. So we're, we're, these are the games I think the players, uh, we remind them, they sign up for these games. We don't want to play in the, the games that don't mean anything and the 8 nothing games. We, we always dream about being at the line when it's the, you're the fifth shooter and, and all the pressure's on. So the guys are excited. It's been a good week. Do, do, you, do, you, uh, do you notice that a little bit in, in training? It's a little bit sharper, a little bit more intense? 
Not that it isn't normal. Um, no, for me, there's been no no real difference. I mean, coming out of this last game and uh, knowing we're not going to have Brad um, for the next game and and even some guys that have come on and done well, it's just made things more competitive around here. And this time of year, that's what we love to see. And we're back hitting Metrofan on the weekly rundown from Metrofan TV here to talk about probably the biggest game of the season. I think that's undisputed. Coming to Red Bull Arena this Sunday are Atlanta United, the new league darlings, the cream of the crop, the favorite team of the pro, of pro referees. Uh, I mean, they don't really need a much of an introduction, I think. Statistics-wise, I think we kind of, everybody kind of knows what this is all about, right? Uh, top of the league, not just in points per game, not just in terms of points overall, not just in terms of wins, but, you know, also league leaders in terms of some of the advanced statistics as well. I think, uh, you know, they do lead the league in expected goals for and expected goals, sorry, for expected goals for and expected goal difference per game. And, you know, I mean... You, we, we kind of know like what they're all about with the way that everyone around the league has been talking about this team in particular. You know, you talk about uh, there being the best expansion team in history and how, you know, I think very much staking a claim to potentially being probably one of the best MLS has ever seen this year. And I think that'd be kind of fair to say. So uh, obviously a lot on our hands to deal with this week coming in. Uh, we know about the key men. It's uh, Miguel Almiron and Joseph Martinez. And uh, following up behind him, you know, I think Barco hasn't been good this season. He's been terribly inconsistent and starting drama on and off the field with his teammates. But stepping up into his void in recent weeks has been the uh, man they bought down to bring in Barco, actually, yeah. Tito Vialba, who has, you know, I think he's kind of kept a lot of the uh, form that uh, made him a very good piece on the team last year. Um, I think looking at recent form, you know, there have been some questions on Atlanta United side. Uh, haven't had, they have been shipping quite a fair bit of goals in the last two games between uh, the 3-1 loss to DC United and that joke of a win over San Jose, <laughs> which we could have talked about, I think, ha dedicate our own episode to, I think, in its own right. But, you know, this is a team that is top of the league for a reason. And, you know, I think without question, probably the best attack in the league and one of the best defenses in MLS. You compare that to us where we have, by some my most metrics, the best defense in MLS and one of the best attacks in the league. Yep. So it's a very interesting matchup that we find ourselves involved in here, right? I think... Um, of course, looking at some of the advanced numbers, uh, you know, Almiron leads expected goal chain. Joseph Martinez leads expected, is one of the expected goal leaders in the league. And on top of that, like, it basically tells us that you have someone who is arguably one of the most dynamic playmakers in all the league feeding, okay, f 10 to 12 penalties aside, he has <laughs> scored a lot of goals. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. you take away those penalties that he scored and he's still hovering around a 20 goal mark yeah not yeah. exceeding it so yeah. you know you kind of do have to give him credit for that in spite of it um 30 goals in, 
30 goals with 7 PKs for Jose Martinez. So take away all the penalties and he'll have 23, which, you know, still puts him, still puts him four ahead, Bradley Wright Phillips. Yep. But without question, um, you know, this I think will be a game that we will win on our defense. And I think that goes without saying, you know, uh, quieting Atlanta's attack is going to be um, much easier said than done, but we have proved ourselves capable of doing it in the past, right? I think we look to uh, the both Atlanta away trips that we went down on uh, last year, sorry, this year and last year, you know, where, I mean, the 3-1 win ended up being a bit flattering because, you know, uh, if we didn't have that uh, second goal from Joseph Martinez waved off because of VAR, you know, it yeah. could have ended it very differently. But, you know, we have to give him credit for when they went down to Mercedes-Benz to just kind of seize the game by the scruff of its neck in the second half. Winning out 3-1 after the uh, penalty from Royer. Whereas, I think, now looking ahead to the visit here at Red Bull Arena, you know, I think uh, there are enough questions that we can ask of Atlanta. You know, I think that we... I, you know, I do disagree with some of the uh, takes that are flying around um, in the Twitter sphere again that, you know, I think that we're probably going to take an L. I don't think it's probable. I think it's more possible that we take an L. Because, I mean, let's face it, like Atlanta are a good team. They're top of the shield standings for a reason. But, you know, I think it really does discredit the fact that, you know, our defense has generally done a pretty good job against dealing with them. Yeah. You know, I think uh, just looking at the way that um, Parker and Long have dealt with the threat of Martinez up front and the way that they've dealt with, with uh, Almiron as well. You know, I think, you know, I think we have enough grounds to believe that we might be able to take something away from this game. Like, I don't know. How do you feel about it? Yeah, I mean, I, before that, that fucking goddamn travesty, that, that bullshit fucking nonsense uh, with, with Brad, you know, missing this game... Our best 11, I think, matches up very well against them. Um, I honestly would have been extremely confident. If there's a reason why I don't feel as confident, it's just going to be because we don't have Bradley. Like, yeah. I think our I think our defense is more than capable of containing them. They 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 have you know last year and this year. Um, I I guess because of some yeah I guess those two games against. Uh, who was it um, against DC and Montreal? You know, makes me a little concerned. But I think what we saw against Toronto was very promising. I think they kind of stepped it up. Like, no, this is you know, we are we still are the best uh, the best defense in, in in the league. So I feel very confident defensively. I don't think we're I don't think we're gonna do. Um, I don't think we're gonna bleed a lot of goals. I think it's really gonna come down to can we score our goals? Because I think what our best Again, with our best attack, I have no doubts that we can score against them. Yeah. E even with this, you know, this um, interesting transition that we're still kind of seeing under Chris, I I'm still very confident that we can bag some goals because their defense isn't bad. I just don't. It's against teams like us, they don't do too well. Um, so yeah, I think there was that statistic that said that their record against like so-called top six teams in the Eastern Conference or in MLS in general isn't quite as good. Yeah, like they they've kind of scraped the bottom. It's weird. Like some of our worst losses this year came from shitty teams. Yeah. They're the opposite. They're you know they just wiped the floor with 
with the bottom of, uh, of the league um, and struggled sometimes against some of the better opponents. So that's another reason why I kind of feel confident. I feel like we should be able to go in there with more confidence than them just because I feel like we're more battle-proven. You know, we may have less points than them, but I feel like we've held our own against the best teams in the league much better than they have. Um, but the big question mark, again, it's it's going to be not having Bradley. That That's not going to be... Um, it's fucking Bradley, man. Like, <laughs> there's no other team in the league that has someone of... That has someone who can just come off the bench and, and, and give you what someone like Bradley can give you. There's no team. We kind of had that last year with Verone. That was more of just an accident because of Jesse's stubbornness to not play the guy. Yeah. You know, it, we didn't, it wasn't a naturally built and designed luxury to have, you know, this, this really good fucking player on the bench to come off as a super sub. We have, I think, good options. I, I think... Um, I, Alex Wheel is DP level, man. <laughs> you know what? Don't quote I, me I, on that. I think <laughs> I'm, I'm convinced enough through various <laughs> conversations where I wouldn't be that upset if Wheel actually started up top. Yeah, no. Um, I, I mean, know about up top. Well, you know, I in, think he should probably at least be considered as a starting option, maybe on the wing. Well, I, so like, I, I think I think if. If he were, if the crazy thing did happen where Wheel started up top, I don't think it would be a strictly single strike formation. I, I definitely think it would be designed in a way where we he would see some interchange. Yeah. Striker, maybe, it would definitely yeah. be more of a, of a two-striker uh, type of deal. Um, but real, realistically, joking aside, it's going to be uh, um, White, Etienne, Royer. Probably a long shot, I realistically, is going to be Anatole. Um, I think Abang probably finds himself on the bench. In my yeah, opinion. Like, I, I, think... I I feel confident he'll be in the eighteen. I just don't know if he goes straight to to the straight you know straight to start, given the fact that he hasn't played an MLS game in a long time. Yeah. So, and look, I mean, you sign Ethan White for a reason. You know, he was banging goals at the respective level he was in, and he scored a goal his first time out against us, against um, Houston. Against yeah, Houston. Yeah, and, and I think when you talk about potential strike options for, uh, you know, who replaces Bradley Wright Phillips, I mean, I'm going to be straight up immediately and say that there is no such thing as someone stepping in yeah. <laughs> and immediately replacing Bradley Wright Phillips no, on exist. this roster right now, anyway. But you have people who can do things that are similar to how he functions in the system. I think when you look at overall skill sets, I think Brian White's hold-up play and his ability to link with the midfield, you know, probably makes him the best option to kind of complement what Brad's doing right now with his own link-up play. The question for me is, is can Brian White replicate a lot of Brad's movement? Yeah, that's can really the key. Can Brian White make himself enough of a threat to draw defenders to him. Mm-hmm. And this is the interesting thing here for me because it can go two ways with regards to Brian White. It's either, you know, he d- defenders respect him and he does manage to successfully draw people away in the same way that Bradley does, or they don't, and he's given a lot more free space to kind of do what he might want to do. Mm-hmm. So those would be the like, so-called two best-case scenarios, of yeah. course. I mean, the worst-case scenario would, of course, be that White is ineffective, and he gets and he shrinks in the uh, occasion. So um, obviously he's going to be a huge wild card, which um, kind of 
you know, I think uh, it, it, comparing overall skill sets again, you know, like I, I agree with you there. Scored at a pretty good clip in USL. Has some similarities to Bradley, I think, in a way that he manages to link up with the midfield. Whether or not he he's as clinical is another thing because we yeah. have seen in USL that he has blown some uh, yeah. chances that he really should have <laughs> buried. But that's the weird thing about young attackers sometimes. You know, I think what's encouraging is is that you know he does appear to have a proclivity to find himself on the ball and find ways to get on the ball yep. and make an impact in the game. I mean, obviously Houston aren't a great litmus test for how well he might do against literally the best fucking team in the league. <laughs> yeah. But there are signs that, you know, he might be able to make an impact. I think, you know, I think we're going to do something a bit differently on MetroFan TV this week. Uh, we received one question in the mailbag this week, and it relates very much to uh, what we were talking about. This comes from Re at SoccerHuman14. Uh, <laughs> well, do you think RBNY should stick to the 4-2-3-1 or change it up against Atlanta? And this is what we relates back to what you were talking about with this idea of do of switching it up, right? With Alex Mueil being considered a option as a striker in some circles on the uh, Twitter sphere. Um, okay, I mean, I obviously have my reservations, but you think of it differently. I think that we are probably going to stick to 4-2-3-1. I don't know if we should, but as far as I'm concerned, nobody in the league right now has proven that they're capable of beating us when we play our best 11 in our best formation. We obviously don't have our best 11 available yep. for this game because Florian Below is injured for the, out for the season and BWP suspended. Yep. But with the rest of the guys in there, you know, I think 9 out of 11 isn't so bad. And, you know, like some of those depth options, you know, they have their own, they bring their own things to the table. Yep. I think striker isn't so much a concern for me as much as it is right wing or what yeah. we do with the wide positions. And I think that's kind of what people have been kind of overlooking a bit is that like our wing production's kind of fallen off a little bit again after Royer's mini hot streak and Brizza's revitalization. Um, starting to see a bit of difficulty emerging from those spots, I think. So yeah. I, but I still think we stick to 4-2-3-1 and we should. Um, just simply because, you know, it's, as we've seen in the past, like just switching it up for the sake of switching it up doesn't always yield the uh, results that you might want. Definitely, but yeah. Proposing a 4-2-2-2 Alex Wheel, I think, uh, you know, you could probably try and sell the people in this one. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I was, I was, you know, I was kind of half-joking. I mean, if, yeah. if, if, if I were, if you, if you can't, if someone came to, came to me and said, okay, what's your Galaxy Brain option? My Galaxy Brain option is starting um, uh, 4 triple two, um, and starting... Uh, Etienne and Wheel up top as the two as the uh, the two strikers, mm. um, or or I mean you could you could have um, Wheel actually um, behind on the right side and have uh, Anatolian and Etienne starting up top together, which actually worked very well in in USL. Mm. Shall I remind everyone? Um, but but that's again that's kind of just joking. But Realistically. The question was starting a bung for me, like kind of relates back to what you're talking about, about like him seeing MLS minutes yeah. again, you know, it's been a while since he's been, like, I don't know if he really has that chemistry that he does with the team anymore, because yep. he's just been away for so long. Yeah, and it just, you know, kind of 
pick getting adapted to the MLS speed and all that stuff. I, I do think he'll end up being a bench option. I'd be, I would, I think I might actually be a little surprised if he's not. Yeah. But my serious answer is no. You don't change the formation. Um, you keep as many people the same as possible. Personally, I think we should probably start White just because he's probably just like skill set wise, I guess, the most like for life with Brad. Yeah. So maybe it'll be easier for some of the players to kind of play behind, you know, or in front of. Because, you know, if you see the same kind of movement or similar movement in front of you in a similar kind of play, it's easier to kind of adjust to that as opposed to just someone who's just a completely different type of player. Yeah. You're going to have to now remember some of the runs. You know, it's not as, as organic and natural as, as, it, as it normally is. Yeah. Um, the flip side is this is a massive game for White to step into. Yeah. Massive, massive game where the second game he ever plays is the biggest game of our year, of, of, of a regular season. Um, so... I'm almost inclined to say, okay, you know, maybe you start Etienne up top since he's got a ton of minutes this year. I mean, he's got hundreds of minutes. He's got, I think, eight, 900 minutes this year. Yeah. You know, he's comfortable. He's played in some big games. He's played up top. But that's where, for me, I get a little concerned. He's not a lone striker. I think that is extremely mm. obvious. He's not a lone striker. And, and this is why I think when we talk about the Galaxy Brain option of the vaunted 4 triple 2 like, if it comes down to that if you i'd rather see maybe white with wheel yeah or etienne as opposed to wheel and etienne together yeah and that sort of thing and why it comes down to that for me is because you know i think they have more complementary skills no, you know yeah. i think I wheel and etienne aren't quite the hold-up players that brian white is they don't really know how to make the same how to move off the ball mm -hmm. as a striker in our system you know, I think White has that down from his seasoning in USL. You know, I think he at least understands, like, how a center player can function in our system, playing center forward. But also, as we remember from Ripple 2, that he's also spent some time as the wide player yeah. out in USL. And yeah, that's yeah. an interesting added wrinkle here for us, right? Is that, you know, he kind of understands both roles, yep. I think, to a degree that makes him more of a flexible option starting both Etienne and Wheel. Because I think with starting both Etienne and Wheel makes it a bit dif difficult because those two are a bit more conditioned to trying, no, a bit more conditioned to understanding the wide position, the bands at the wide positions yeah. as opposed to the center positions. So if you take a gamble, and I'm saying that this is completely unlikely, by the way, before anyone hops into my mentions, <laughs> talking yeah. about how I'm fucking advocating for four triple two. Yeah, this no. is this is the galaxy this is brain a complete scenario. <laughs> galaxy brain scenario. If it comes down to it, I'd rather have a combination of Brian White and one of Wheel and Etienne, yeah. just simply because I think the uh, simply because I think uh, you know the skill sets are a bit more complementary. But you what? know, wait, I don't know. I, but you know, like I, I, I think all of this is kind of you know a bit moot anyway because I don't anticipate both Wheel and Etienne starting anyway because I think no. as we mentioned I still would probably still expect a four two three one and I see Danny when we see Danny Royer out there on the left. Yeah. I well, want Chris to switch it up on the right side. I think we should try Alex for this game instead of Riza because I think as we, as some heat map analysis has shown, you know I think Riza and Kaku are in the same on the field at the same time, they kind of overlap each other a bit too much. And it's kind of been a bit of an incongru 
incongruous part of the way that we've lined up, I think, this season. Yeah. Is that they kind of just try and, you know, uh, occupy the same positions a bit too much, and that kind of throws our spacing a little bit off. Uh, yeah, actually, I'm, I'm going to, I mean, I obviously can't show everyone, but yeah, I mean, I was looking at the heat map just from the last game, and I mean, they were practically on top of each other. Like, that's, yeah. I mean, Rizzo was a little further back uh, in some ways, but I mean, they're, they're the, the hottest parts, you know, where most of their touches were, were almost right on top of each other. And, and, and it's, I don't want to segue too far away from that question, but I think that kind of goes back to before with some of the changes. Even Gaku had mentioned that he's being asked to play a little bit differently. Rizza is not a winger. He's more comfortable in the middle, but so is Gaku. So, like, if there's not super clear instructions of what each should do in certain moments, you're going to see that. You're going to see kind of conflicting two-like type of, 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 of players, and you're not going to see enough... Um, even though the idea is to sprout the attack, you're not actually going to see a spread of the attack because you basically have two guys kind of stepping on each, on each, other's, uh, each other's toes um, more than it should. But segueing back to, to, the, the former, uh, to the formation thing, I think this is a perfect game where um, you get you sick to the 4-2-3-1, but I am totally for Risen not starting this game because I feel like this is a game where you need a high level of, of, of athleticism on on you know on the wings out wide to deal with their wing play, which is really, really good. You're gonna need someone like Wheel to kind of just be that disruption in the midfield. And yeah, he's been very good at doing that in the last couple of games as a sub option, but I feel Atlanta's dangerous enough, as good as our defenders are, they're a dangerous enough team from minute one where you cannot give them any breathing room. You can't give them the first 60 minutes yeah. to then decide, okay, we're going to bring in our, 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 um, uh, you know, our, our, our pressing super sub essentially off the bench in the 60, 65th minute and now turn things around or really start going forward. What it may have worked against Toronto. It's not going to work against a team like Atlanta. It's, yeah. it's just not going to happen. They need to go out and assert their dominance from minute one. They need to go full dick punch this game. From minute fucking one, and this could be hard to do without someone like Velo, because, and I've I've brought this up so many times, not just you know on 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 you know, the weekly rundown, but on Twitter, losing Velo has been crucial, and I think more crucial than pe than people realize. And one of the many stats that I can add to this is the dig punch. If you look at the 11 of 14 games that we scored um, in the first half. Five of those games involved Flo either getting a goal or an assist. We only have six of 14 under Armas that we scored in the first half. So we can't, they have to find a way to bring that back, to bring that intensity on that side back. And to me, the only person that can do that, especially in a game like this, where Atlanta isn't comfortable against teams like us, is as Alex Wheel. So yeah. I say 4 2 3 1. Um, Wheel on the right wing. I'm almost willing to entertain starting Etienne on the left and starting right up top, but that might be too big of a change. But I, I, I don't think they should mess around with the formation because realistically, messing around with the formation is actually going to be five in the back. It's not going to be a 4 2 2 2. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think to kind of add on, I think to turn your route out discussion a little bit when we talk about dropping production from the right wing, uh, you know, it. 
at the time, you know, we were proponents of starting RZA at the time, uh, you know, but, uh, and that was under the assumption that, you know, he'd be able to kind of carry on the same things that, uh, you know, uh, he brought to the table when he first brought into the starting lineup, right? But I think it's starting to become a bit more clear that RZA kind of struggles a bit with, uh, you know, not just teams that play physically, but also teams that kind of play fast. Yeah. Play directly, quickly, you know, and I don't really gain the sense, I gain the sense that he's a bit more of a control player that we throw out when teams are trying to slow us down. Yeah. Uh, sorry, when teams are, sorry, bunkering a bit more and there's a bit more space to operate on the ball. You know, we're not going to be getting as much of this space against Atlanta because as we know, Tata Martino loves to press. Yeah. He, he, does, the, he does that very typical Argentine five seconds of pressing and then revert and then yep. dropping back. You know, it's the fucking classic Marcelo Bielsa <laughs> school of thought. And it's funny because he's, he's like, he's flat out said that like, the Red Bull press is what is what he wants. Like that's that's his model for press that he said he eventually wants to get to. Which he may never do that if if you know who knows what happens yeah. if he actually sticks around next year. But yeah, that that is that is true. They they are they're a pressing team. They press differently, but they definitely press. And Riza just doesn't. He never looks comfortable against uh, against teams like that. Yeah. So we we know Atlanta are going to be fast and they're going to be physical because that's what their system demands of their players. And when you really think about um, like versus like, you know, like we, you, you're going to need someone who is a bit more, who thrives a bit more in chaos. Mm -hmm. You need That's that true. fucking dirtbag who <laughs> drives right into the heart, the hurricane and rides out the storm. Yeah. And, you know, I think Alex is probably the guy who we can look at on this roster who has those attributes the most. Yep. Which is why I think I'd kind of advocate for him starting out there on the right because he's the guy who thrives in chaos yeah. because he creates so much of it. His best games have been against teams that like to play. I mean, look at last week when Toron Toronto was trying to claw back. They were trying to play, and, and Wheel was loving it. I mean, he was eating that shit. Yeah, and that's exactly the type of player, like, this is, like, this is exactly the type of player that I anticipate that this game state calls for. Yep. You don't want to be the guys, like, so much trying to uh, weather the storm as much as you want to be the guys who create the storm. Yeah. And I think Alex is going to be an integral part of that this weekend if he starts. Yeah, yeah. definitely. So I guess, uh, you know, this does it for us here on Metro Fan TV. Uh, we will be seeing you Sunday afternoon at Ripple Arena for not just uh, the game against Atlanta, the Shield Decider, but it will, of course, be uh, the last game that I'll be there physically to do uh, post-game interviews and stuff like that. Um, I hope to uh, end this uh, part of my... Uh, <laughs> stint here in New York with a win, obviously, so I can uh, take that 16-hour flight home happy. Um, of course, you know, I will be, as I mentioned, I will be continuing on here for to doing the weekly rundown week in, week out, uh, but we will be needing someone to, uh, you know, once again, step in and help us uh, out in the interviews. So if you ever enjoyed the content that we're putting out, you ever wanted to uh, contribute to it, well, now's the time for you send in those applications because you can be a part of what we're trying to grow here at Metro Fan TV. But I guess, uh, you know, uh, we'll cry when it's over, ladies and gentlemen, and whether or not what happens there on Sunday, you know, let's just go out and hope that they play a really good 90 minutes because, you know, this is the biggest game of the season and we should be excited for it. And as I think I will been, I'll end, I'll end this episode on the same thing that I've been saying all season. When we are at our best, 
we can beat anyone in MLS. Yep. And I will ride that until I die. That's your fan TV. Saying goodnight. Yeah, 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 damn up, yeah, yeah, so let it be a dead, yeah, yeah, no hay nada malo, estamos bien, está todo bien, ey, todos los míos están bien, estamos bien, ey, no te preocupes, estamos bien, ey, so let it be a dead, yeah, yeah, no hay nada malo, estamos bien, está todo bien, ey, El dinero me llueve Me da diablo que aguacero En la cuenta un par de cero Y empezamos desde cero Y eso que soy un grosero Que se joda soy sincero Y si mañana me muero Ya estoy acostumbrado a estar siempre en el cielo En privado siempre vuelo Hoy me levanté contento y me levanté feliz Aunque dicen por ahí que están hablando de mí Joda que se joda que se joda Joda que se joda que se joda Hoy me levanté contento y me levanté feliz Aunque dicen por ahí que están hablando de mí Joda que se joda que se joda Como bradando, tirando el birrata Como narco comprando billetes La Mercedes en PR cogiendo boquetes Vivo como soñé a los 17 El que no logra un E, ¿por qué no le mata? Dime qué esperas tú, si alguien puede eres tú Aunque pa' casa no ha llegado la luz Gracias a Dios porque tengo salud La vida no tiene repetición Después que mami me echa la bendición Pero tener no es malo, así que estamos bien, estamos bien, ey Todos los míos están bien, estamos bien, ey No te preocupes, estamos bien, ey